Rum, rebels and ratbags. Hardcore history from the Transportation Nation with Dave Hunt and Dom Knight. Yes, welcome to the podcast where we reveal the fascinating characters and bizarre tales from Australia's past that were inexplicably left out of your high school history class. In this episode, did you know that Sir Joseph Banks was far more than just some botanist dude who gave the Banks here its name? He was just as interested in the diversity of the female species, if you know what I mean. Inspired one of the most iconic Star Trek characters, was the world's first surfing journalist and pretty much ran Australia from afar for several decades. I'm Dom Knight and your guide through our glorious and frequently inglorious past is historian and author... David Hunt. G'day, Dom. Hello, Dave. Hello. So, so Joseph Banks, I, mean, I just sort of thought the Banks here, maybe Bankstown as well, that's it? No, no, no. As you said, he was a dude. He was the guy who first introduced the word tattoo into the English language. So whenever you're going down to Bondi or Bankstown, named after Banks, and you see somebody with tats, we have Sir Joseph to thank for introducing that wonderful word into the English language. What a contribution. But also uh, the Star Trek connection. Yeah, look, Banks was the inspiration for Mr Spock on Star Trek. It's continuing mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations. Indeed, the voyage of Captain Cook was the inspiration for Star Trek in its entirety. So Gene Roddenberry, who was the creator of Star Trek, was an absolute Captain Cook nut. Mm. And so Captain James Kirk is named after Captain James Cook. Uh, The Endeavour and the Enterprise both mean to sort of try or strive for something. Have a go. Have a go. So the Enterprise was named after the Endeavour and the very famous catchphrase... To boldly go where no one has gone before was paraphrased from Cook's journal on the Endeavour voyage, which read, Ambition leads me not only farther than any other man has been before me, but as far as I think it is possible for man to go. I'm pretty confident, though, that uh, certainly the Cook and Banks voyage, they regularly violated the prime directive of Starfleet. So we'll find out out now (laughs) very shortly. But the thing is, history's tended to focus on Cook uh, and not Banks, whereas in the time, David, it it was the other way around. Banks was the rock star of his era, and Cook was really regarded as the guy who steered the boat for Joseph Banks. So now we regard him as the plant guy, a man of not much importance other than collecting a few flowers and leaves when he came down under. But at the time, he had this huge influence on British science, British decision-making about Australia. He was a scientific god of his era. Wasn't it even Banks' idea to actually have the penal colony here in the first place? Yeah, Banks recommended that New South Wales be established as a penal colony in 1779, some eight or nine years before Arthur Phillip got it off the ground. And he did that because there'd been the American War of Independence and the Americans had stopped taking British convicts and Britain desperately needed somewhere new to stick all of its uh, pickpockets, rapists and Irishmen. <laughs> and, uh, and Banks said, I, I know just the place. <laughs> Let's go back to the start of Sir Joseph Banks' story, yeah. David Hunt. He first developed his interest in natural history when back at jolly old Eton. He did. Eton was a school that was very, very big, not so much on learning, but on healthy, manly activities. 
And so all the boys were encouraged to smoke a pipe for their good health. And they had a collection of frightened animals in the school because the school actually sponsored bull baiting, bear baiting, badger baiting. Anything that begins with any, a B. Anything that began with a B, basically. Uh, and that was the place where Joseph came into contact with all of these terrified animals that he could examine and probe and do zoology-type things to. There was a, a very quaint tradition in Eton where the boys would chase a hamstrung ram around the school and then into the village, and they would chase it, and they would beat the unfortunate sheep to death. Very British public school it I was. I wonder if Prince Harry and uh, Prince William did that <laughs> when they were at Eton, I'm not sure. Now, as a creature of the Enlightenment, Banks mm. was all about this attitude that you muck in and you do it yourself. Uh, it's yeah. kind of like a botanical Steve Irwin. It was. Like, this was the era in, in British and American and European history where people were beginning to come to grips with this new thing called science. And people decided that they would essentially experiment on themselves and observe the effects. So Sir Isaac Newton, who's one of the great fathers of the Enlightenment, once inserted a blunt needle into the back of his eyeball oh, to, uh, to see what sort of effect it would have on his vision. Not so good? <laughs> Not very good at all. And Banks sort of took this idea. And as a, as a kid, when he was studying... Uh, zoology and botany, um, he got toads and rubbed them all over his face in an attempt to disprove that they caused warts. He didn't get any warts. He was satisfied that he'd proven his point. QED. And then yeah. his first uh, overseas voyage of discovery, though, was actually not so much to Australia as, as Canada. Yeah. Back in the day, young gentleman of means, and he was a very, very wealthy bloke, they'd normally go off to the continent and collect whatever they were into collecting over there. He said, look, everybody's done Europe. I'm going off to Canada. A much grander grand tour. It was a grander grand tour. During that period, while he was off uh, gallivanting around Canada, a very significant thing happened. He was made a fellow of the Royal Society. It all yeah. sounds terribly posh. What's the Royal Society? The Royal Society was really uh, Britain's premier club for eggheads and poindexters. It was where you went to do some serious science stuff except most of the people there weren't serious scientists. They were the um, third sons of noblemen. They were often country vicars. And they would basically go and do papers on all sorts of interesting scientific questions and some quite dull ones. Reverend Borlase, I think, spent all of his time writing about how much it was or wasn't raining in a very small village in Cornwall. And that was his contribution to science. God data. Bless. Yeah, he would have got a all PhD data. for that, certainly. But it was in those hallowed halls of the Royal Society where the idea of uh, a voyage... Mm. to the south first took shape. Absolutely. Captain Cook was sent, and he wasn't Captain Cook then, he was Lieutenant Cook. He didn't become a captain until much later on in the piece. He was sent to measure the transit of Venus. And that is how quickly Venus moves across the face of the sun, and that was used to determine the distance between the sun and the earth, which would help them measure longitude at sea, which nobody knew how to do properly. So this was a big scientific so a, deal. A huge, if they'd figured it out, a huge advance in terms of navigation for the Royal Navy. Absolutely. And the opportunity to do this only came around once every sort of 125 years or so. And you then have two transit sorts of eight years apart. Um, everybody had missed out on measuring the one eight years previously. So Cook was packed off to Tahiti so in the 1770. Last, the last chance. The last chance. To figure out uh, longitude. Yep. And um, he was looking for somebody to do some sciencey stuff and collect some plants and animals on the voyage. And um, Joseph Banks put his hand up. Right, so there you have Cook and Banks together heading off 
aboard the Endeavour. Mm. Uh, now, what did Banks pack for the trip? A fairly wealthy man. He had a, a pretty big collection of matched luggage. He did. The entire three voyages that the British sent out to measure the transit of Venus cost £4,000. Banks packed £10,000 worth of luggage. They must have hated he did. him. He did. He, he was the sort of person who gets stopped at Sydney Airport with 20 suitcases and holds up the queue and everybody gets very grumpy. He was that guy. Um, he took all of his uh, botanical books, he took seed trays, he took pickling alcohol, he took various fishing nets, he took a boat, uh, he took uh, umbrellas for all weather conditions ranging from fine silk to heavy oilskin, and he took an entourage. He, um, he was a bloke who had groupies, and he took uh, eight guys with him to paint things, collect things, generally be scientific dog's bodies. That's a movie they should make, the, the Banks version of Entourage. Hey, Johnny. You gorgeous. What up, players? Looking good, Johnny Drama. Feeling good, JJ. Feeling good. So many uh, weeks and months at sea. What was life actually like sailing to the south aboard the Endeavour? Look, the Endeavour was only 32 metres long and only nine metres wide, so it was pretty small. And in that, you had 94 men, uh, you had dogs, cats, pigs, chickens, and the ship's goat. Uh, and the ship's goat is one of the heroes of the Endeavour voyage because it was an incredibly well-travelled goat. Cook himself was not a well-travelled seaman. He'd never crossed the equator. But the goat had the previous year actually circumnavigated the globe. So, so the, 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 the goat was the veteran sailor on the voyage. Uh, Cook also packed his uh, two children, or said he did. Um, he said that he took his five- and seven-year-old sons along for the voyage, and he didn't. He left them at home. So he fraudulently enrolled them as crew um, in an attempt to speed their progress through naval ranks, which was a bit dodgy. Were but they on the payroll? They were, they were on the payroll, but everybody was doing it in those days. There was no ICAC. You mentioned when they crossed the equator. In those days, it was a very important moment, and there was a little ritual when you uh, finally hit the Southern Hemisphere. Absolutely. Um, there was a great naval tradition that when you cross the equator for the first time, everybody who hasn't crossed the equator gets dunked from the yardarm three times. Now, the ship's goat was in the clear, but they dunked several of the ship's cats and dogs. They dumped several of the sailors, uh, and Banks and Cook both paid a fine uh, to avoid getting dunked. And whilst people were getting dunked, the sailors took off their clothes, you know, decorated themselves with seaweed and acted as sort of Neptune and Poseidon, the gods of the sea. This is how sailors amuse themselves during those long sea voyages. I imagine there might have been a bit of rum consumed along the, along the way. Uh, a bit, a bit, um, quite a lot, really. Alcohol was an incredibly important part of ship life. And indeed, several of the Endeavour's crew died of acute alcohol poisoning. Um, one, Dick Orton, who was Cook's clerk, got so totaled one night uh, that he had all of his clothes and both of his ears cut off with a knife and he didn't wake up. So every sailor got a pint of rum a day and the ship's boys got half a pint and there was a lot of bumping into masts that weren't there. Banks was always complaining about sailors piddling in his seed trays. It was party time. It was a floating frat house by the sound It was. <laughs> I guess the ultimate purpose of the trip initially was mm. to go to Tahiti to observe the transit of Venus, as you were saying. And they spent a lot of time in Tahiti. What did they get up to? 
Banks loved Tahiti because there were all these new plants and animals for him to look at. The sailors loved the Tahitian girls who were wearing grass skirts and not a lot else. Banks really liked the grass skirts and studied them quite closely. Was it an interesting species of grass, was it? It was, the, uh, the new species of pili grass, I believe. And he found it easy to study these um, skirts after gently prizing the Polynesian women out of them. And Banks's diary of the Endeavour voyage and his time in Tahiti is very, very racy. Possibly not safe for work. In the island of Tahiti, where love is the chief occupation, the favourite, nay, almost the sole luxury of the inhabitants, both the bodies and the souls of the women are modelled into the utmost perfection for that soft science. The foremost of the women, quickly unveiling all her charms, gave me a most convenient opportunity of admiring them by turning herself gradually round. And she once more displayed her naked beauties and immediately marched up to me. I took her by the hand and led her to the tents, accompanied by another woman, her friend. To both of them I made presents, but could not prevail upon them to stay more than an hour. Mm. Steamy! Yes. <laughs> so they had such a good time in Tahiti, David. Yeah. How did they go observing the transit of Venus? Uh, they were less successful in that. There were three different uh, measurements that were meant to take place. Uh, Cook was doing one. Um, and the astronomer Green was doing one, and Salander, who was one of Banks' assistants, was was doing the other. And they all came up with different measurements. Um, so they'd gone all the way to Tahiti, and astronomically speaking, uh, the the voyage was an astronomical failure. How long did it take them to, to get there, just to stuff up the measurements? Oh, you know, a few months at sea. And David, while in Tahiti, uh, Sir Joseph Banks became the world's first surfing journalist. Joseph was out there on the beach watching the natives ride the waves and he was, as they would say in surfing terminology, stoked. He was the first bloke who actually recorded in the written word um, a description of people surfing. Did he ever have a go? He, um, he sadly didn't. He was, not a strong, he was not a strong swimmer. So after a couple of months in Tahiti and uh, having a lot of fun but not really doing the thing they were supposed to do, they unpacked the secret orders and headed further south, David. Yeah, look, Cook had uh, orders that he was to try and discover Terra Australis, this vast continent that um, the Western powers of the world believed must lie in the Southern Hemisphere to balance all of the land in the North. So they believed in this giant Southern continent. A counterweight, really. A counterweight continent. And Cook was sent off to find it. And first of all, he sails to New Zealand, and Banks insists that New Zealand must be this vast continent. Did he just sort of want to go home? <laughs> job, yeah, job, yeah, done. job done. First job thing done. we found, let's get out of there. How did they get on in New Zealand? Uh, they, they, they found dealing with the Maori pretty difficult, uh, because every time they tried to approach the Maori, the Maori would try and cut off their heads and eat them. And so there was serious conflict with the Maori, and a number of Maori were shot. Um, and Banks found this incredibly distressing. He was a he was a humanist. He was a lover, not a fighter. He was a lover, not a fighter. Um, but when some of the the local cannibals gave him a human head for his burgeoning collection of human heads, he decided that the place wasn't so bad after all. Right. So he got at least something for the trip to New Zealand, and then became the the first bunch of Europeans, or one of the first bunches, to to do that crossing of the Tasman between New Zealand and Australia, and. Uh, Wound up not too far from Bondi Beach, but that wasn't the first place that they stopped. 
Uh, no. So they sailed um, to the east coast of Australia, and they were the first Europeans established to hit the east coast of Australia, and they sailed up the coast and they pulled into... It was called Stingray Harbour at the time, very Stephen Irwin-esque. There were lots of stingrays around. And then Banks went off foraging in the bush and he comes back with all of this novel plant life, you know, strapped to every inch of his body. He cleans out Cook's uh, Cook's cabin and fills it with ferns and Banksia and wattle. Um, And Cook is so overcome by the, the joy of his botanist that he renames Stingray Harbour Botany Bay. It must have been quite a, quite a sight emerging from the undergrowth with all those uh, things trapped to him. But it, it wasn't just plants that he discovered, David. He, he identified some uh, now legendary Australian animals yeah, as well. Yeah, no, look, Banks was the guy who gave us the name kangaroo. Admittedly, he stole it from the local Aboriginal people up near Cooktown in Queensland. Um, but he named the kangaroo, he named the quoll, the native cat, and he was the first person to describe the dingo and the flying fox. And the flying fox disturbed many of the sailors on the ship. For some reason, they believed it to be the devil. It sort of had a a ferocious face. It had bat wings. It hung upside down and it looked mean. So people were pretty cool with most Australian wildlife, but the fruit bat scared the bejesus out of them. And look, it worked for Bruce Wayne for the same uh, <laughs> same reason later on. Okay, so he discovers a lot of plants, a lot of uh, a lot of animals. How were relations with the Aboriginal people that they met uh, along the way? The first time they met Aboriginal people were two members of the Gwagal tribe at Botany Bay, and the Gwagal men threw stones and spears at the approaching boats, and Cook responded with musket fire, shooting one. Both fled into the bush. And afterward, Cook rather plaintively notes, all they seemed to want for, was for us to be gone. Then when they go up to Queensland and they spend several weeks after running the endeavour straight up the guts of the Great Barrier Reef... Whoops. Oops. Yeah, you can see it from outer space, but apparently not from 100 yards. So Cook's there repairing the ship and Banks is out there collecting plants. The local Aborigines there periodically tried to set fire to Cook's camp and Banks believed that the Aboriginal people were basically Polynesians who hadn't bathed recently and he went round licking his fingers and rubbing their skin. Seriously? Yeah. He tried to wash the... He tried to to lighten their skin tone and only came to accept that they were a different, distinct race of people when that failed. So relationships were... Not that good. Not brilliant, perhaps, from from the very start. Mm. Okay, so eventually they went to a place called Possession Island, where they... Or uh, Dispossession Island, depending on what way you look at it. Where they claimed the whole shebang. Let's have a listen to uh, the orders that they had. You are also, with the consent of the natives, to take possession of convenient situations in the country in the name of the King of Great Britain. Okay, so there's a little clause there, David Hunt, um, with the consent of the natives. The natives' consent in legal terms uh, depended upon them uh, in, in the views of great legal scholars of Britain and the continent having the use and possession of the land. And Banks himself argued during the voyage that the Aborigines were too uncivilised to have made proper use of the land. He said that they are ignorant of the arts of cultivation and wandered like the Arabs from place to place. And so the British 
used Banks' words as justification for this formal dispossession. So he was, in a sense, the author of the Doctrine of Terra Nullius. He was the, the guy who directed in, in, in many ways that it be applied to Australia. Yeah. So a huge influence on uh, subsequent relations, of course, there. Now, when they had claimed the whole thing, pretending that it was uninhabited, they then took off for Batavia. Where is Batavia exactly? Batavia is modern-day Jakarta. Um, it's where the Dutch hung out in Indonesia, and it was a major shipping port at the time. And when the Endeavour pulls into Batavia, um, this is a city that is full of canals, and the only things that like canals more than the Dutch people who build them are mosquitoes. And basically the whole crew comes down with malaria, the doctor is the first to die, the couple of Tahitians that, that, that Banks had collected for himself in Tahiti both died of malaria, so did a number of his companions. You had, I think, over 35 deaths uh, of the crew, so they were completely laid low by malaria and then following that dysentery on the way home. And how did our uh, wealthy playboy, Sir Joseph Banks, cope with his time in Batavia? Well, Banks coped quite well. He bought himself a lovely mansion on the uh, the outskirts of the city. He uh, bought eight slaves and two obliging Malay women to, uh, to tend him as he sweated through the fever and lived pretty comfortably whilst everybody else was on the boat sort of groaning in their hammocks, which were only a few inches apart. So Banks had it easy. That's our Joseph. Now, uh, the Endeavour eventually made it back to the UK after many fatalities on the way. What kind of reception did they get when they finally pulled back into... Uh, to the harbour. Well, Cook didn't get much of a reception at all. As far as everybody was concerned, the his part of the voyage, which was measuring the transit of Venus, was a failure. But Banks was hailed as this hero of science. He'd discovered over 1,400 new plants and over 1,000 new animals. Uh, people clamoured for New South Wales, as Cook had called it on Possession Island, to be renamed Banksia. He became a close confidant of King George III uh, and during the madness of King George would walk with him in the garden, which was probably pretty handy because King George talked to trees and being a botanist, he could probably serve as some sort of translator. But he was in with the royal family, he was in with society and apart from the goat, which was the other hero of the voyage, which has this glowing poem written about it having circumnavigated the globe twice now by Samuel Johnson, the guy who, who crafted the first dictionary, um, Cook was regarded as a, a bit of a B-grader after that expedition. So the, the fame stakes went banks very much at the top, then the goat, yep. then quite a long way down, poor old Cook. Yep. How was Cook treated upon re return? And you said that the Royal Society weren't terribly happy the, the, with the, the measurements. The Royal Society officially censured him and the terms of that censure have been removed from the Royal Society papers, so nobody's in, entirely sure how bad it was. But he got a bit of a bollocking. Uh, two of his kids had died whilst he was overseas. It, it wasn't a, a particularly warm and happy homecoming for him. And then after he gets back, Banks says, but we didn't discover Terra Australis. I want to go out there again, and Cook's just the man to do it. And Cook you know, sort of threw up his hands and said, look, I think we've proved it didn't exist. We found New Zealand. We found New South Wales. Isn't that enough land? And Banks says, no, it's out there. So they plan a second voyage. Why did they not think that Australia was this uh, so-called Terra Australis? It just wasn't big enough 
to balance, you know, Europe and Asia and bits of North Africa to the north. They really believed that there was something huge down there that nobody had run into. And it wasn't until Cook's second voyage that everybody said, OK, there's nothing there except a lot of ocean. Right. So this the second voyage, lots of plans were made. Banks was going to go aboard and even made some elaborate preparations for another trip. The power had gone to Banks's head, and so he spent the time planning for the, the second voyage, throwing parties for his groupies on board the ship, and the cabin wasn't big enough for Banks. He decided that he was going to have the grandest cabin on the ship, but it wasn't big enough. So he insisted that the deck be raised, the entire deck be raised, so he'd have more headroom down below. And this so overbalanced the ship that it couldn't pull out of port, and the Admiralty said, no. Nah, all of, all of Banks' renovations were stripped back and Banks did his nana. He went absolutely ape, he stamped, he swore, he shouted at people and then in a fit of pique he said, I'm not going. So he'd planned this thing and it's left to Cook to go off by himself. And how did the voyage go? The, uh, one of the, the great things on the voyage was that when Cook pulls into Madeira, a person gets on board and says my name is Mr Burnett I'm here as Mr Banks's personal assistant and Cook writes back to the Admiralty every part of Mr Burnett's behaviour and every action tended to prove that he was a woman so Banks had actually arranged before pulling out of the voyage for his mistress to dress as a man and wait for him in Madeira um, and then he was going to pack his mis- pack his mistress for the long sea voyage. Mr. Burnett must have got quite a rude shock when Banks wasn't on the boat. Mr. Burnett was not impressed, and this was very much in Banks's playbook. When he got home, he dumped his seventeen-year-old fiancée, gave her five thousand pounds to go away. He got another young woman pregnant, didn't marry her, the only child he ever had, a daughter. He had a long-term affair with his housekeeper, um, and the Town and Country magazine basically wrote uh, an entire scandal sheet on the sexual escapades of banks containing lines like the women of most countries he has visited have undergone every critical inspection by him. And it talks about how this guy is just a sort of a destructive force around the ladies. Um, and the Burnett story reinforces that he was, he was a genuine playboy. So later in life, though, Sir Joseph Banks became a very significant figure in the establishment, and there's a connection to lightning. There is. Benjamin Franklin was the guy in America who developed the lightning rod, and the lightning rod was a great invention. You stuck it on top of a ship, and when lightning hit the ship, the ship no longer exploded. So this was a big, big deal. Buildings as well. You know, St Paul's Cathedral, stick a lightning rod on top. And when Franklin helped draft the American Declaration of Independence, King George was so furious that he instructed the Royal Society to devise a new sort of lightning rod that was not shaped like the one that Benjamin Franklin devised. They would have designed a new lightning rod. And the president of the Royal Society, John Pringle, said to the king, look, Franklin's lightning rod is better than the one you've told me to build and said, sire, I cannot affect the law and uh, the laws and operation of nature. And the king said, no, nah, you're gone. Sacked him, and Banks, at a very young age, having written no scientific papers of note, is made the president of the Royal Society, and he fulfilled that post 
for the next 40-odd years. So for the next 40 years, he was the number one man in, in charge of British science. And over the decades to come after those voyages, he had a huge role in dealing with British policy on New South Wales. In a sense, mm. he, he kind of ran the place from, from uh, back in England. He did. So every time somebody wanted to do something in New South Wales, the parliament would seek the views of Banks. Banks was the guy who suggested that uh, William Bly go out on the breadfruit voyage uh, and two breadfruit voyages, both of which ended not that successfully, and then recommended Bly as governor of New South Wales, leading to Australia's only military coup. We'll take a look at Bly another time, I think, David. So yeah. look, let's finish the story of Sir Joseph Banks. How did his life end up? What, what was he like in old age? In later life, Banks, that guy who was once so vibrant, uh, so playful, becomes a really crusty old fart. He suffered from gout. He was grotesquely overweight. He was confined to a wheelchair. He had the British Empire's bushiest pair of eyebrows. <laughs> and politically, he was very conservative. He argued that all of these convicts who were sentenced to death and then instead being transported um, were getting it easy, and he recommended that the executions that had been imposed by the courts be followed through on. He railed against opponents of slavery and animal vivisection. He regarded all of these people as soft liberals, and he didn't like them at all. So in 1820, when he died, he was, he was quite a cantankerous bastard, really. So there you have it, Sir Joseph Banks, playboy, uh, botanist, not very much like Mr Spock, you have to say. Not at all. No, completely different guys, but without Joseph Banks, we would not have Star Trek. Next week we'll find out who else visited Australia before Banks and Captain Cook, because it turns out there's a reason that Australia was originally known as New Holland. You want to bring a plate. Remember, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud or your favourite podcast app. Catch you next time.